And then I noticed in all of Dallas, there appears to be exactly one person standing under an open black umbrella. And that person is standing where the shots begin to rain into the limousine. Let us call him the Umbrella Man. The Umbrella Man? Who is he? Welcome to Plausible, a podcast where you, the jury, dive with me into the discovery of things having the appearance of truth or reason. Plausibility gives space not for what you already know, but for the outliers, conjectures, the unexplained history, the crazy-sounding, hard-to-believe, but true. Got your coffee? Or maybe a nice London fog, which is my warm drink of choice lately? And join me as we rethink what is, or isn't, plausible. Episode 2, All Eyes on You. On September 15, 1938, Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, flew to Germany to negotiate with Adolf Hitler. Hitler wanted to obtain autonomy for a part of Czechoslovakia with a German-majority population, called Sudetenland. The Czech government had refused, obviously, and Hitler was becoming more aggressive toward them, also obvious, with a prospect of full invasion. In this meeting with Chamberlain, Hitler demanded Sudetenland become a part of Germany, not just have autonomy. Chamberlain, who became known for his appeasement policies in regards to de-escalating things with Hitler, flew back to Britain and urged that the Czech president hand all German-majority territory to Germany. Then, a week later, Chamberlain flew back to Germany and met with Hitler a second time. Now, in this meeting, Hitler kept changing his mind about his demands— Meanwhile, France and Britain began mobilizing military as Czechoslovakia continued to refuse them. There was a third meeting in Munich in which Hitler actually signed a peace treaty between the UK and Germany, after which Chamberlain returned to Britain claiming peace. But after Sudetenland ceded to Germany, just six months later the Nazis had complete occupation of Czechoslovakia. Then, on September 1, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. The following May, Winston Churchill became prime minister. Churchill did not agree with Chamberlain's appeasement approach, which is making concessions to an aggressive power in order to avoid conflict. But while Churchill did not agree, many others in politics had supported Chamberlain. After all, Chamberlain and much of the world had not at that time fully understood the depth of Hitler's evil. And so, one of those who had supported Chamberlain's policies was the U.S. ambassador to the Court of St. James, Joseph Kennedy, JFK's father. He was the official representative of President Franklin Roosevelt and the U.S. government to the Queen and government of the U.K. Now fast forward nearly 30 years to the presidential motorcade taking place in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. When you watch the Zapruder film or look at any visual documentation of JFK's assassination, you may notice something odd. Just as Kennedy's motorcade car passes the Stemmons freeway sign, this is in frame 220 in the Zapruder film, JFK puts his fists up to his neck after the first shot, and there, just there, is a man. You see the black umbrella he is holding just after the car becomes visible on the other side of the freeway sign. I knew about the Umbrella Man for years and had watched the Zapruder film dozens of times before I realized you could see his umbrella right there in the film. 
What is he doing? And why talk about all of this? There were lots of speculations over the years about him, but here is Josiah Tink Thompson, the journalist who named the Umbrella Man, in an interview with Errol Morris with the New York Times. Well, I asked that the Umbrella Man come forward and explain this. So he did. He came forward and he went to Washington with his umbrella and he testified in 1978 before the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He explained then why he had opened the umbrella and was standing there that day. The open umbrella was a kind of protest, a visual protest. It wasn't a protest of any of John Kennedy's policies as president. It was a protest at the appeasement policies of Joseph P. Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, when he was ambassador to the court of St. James in 1938 and 1939. It was a reference to Neville Chamberlain's umbrella. And as Tink says in this interview, It sounds just crazy enough to be true. I love discovering these things about the context of the assassination because the more we bring to rest what is certain, the more clearly we can start to see the things that are not. So let's talk about the motorcade and what happened in Dealey Plaza because that is where a lot of uncertainty still remains. I want to introduce you to a man named Clint Hill. Special Agent Hill is a fascinating character. He was a former Secret Service agent to five different U.S. presidents, Eisenhower, Kennedy, LBJ, Nixon, and Ford. And during Kennedy's presidency, Hill's detail was to protect Jackie, JFK's wife. He has written several books, including one that is about what it was like to travel and work with and watch over Mrs. Kennedy. And as you watch the Zapruder film of the assassination, that is exactly the reason why you see Special Agent Hill jump on the back of the Lincoln motorcade car just after Kennedy receives his fatal blow. Hill is running to make sure no one shoots Jackie as well. In his book, Five Days in November, Hill gives us context as to why Kennedy was in Dallas in the first place. JFK, Vice President Johnson, and John Connolly, remember you met him in the last episode? had met regarding the upcoming election in 1964. Because the 1960 election against Nixon was such a close race, they knew they needed to campaign in Texas and Florida to get more electoral votes. JFK had actually gone to Florida the week before Texas, and they had experienced large crowds, which was exactly what they wanted to happen to gain ground for the election. In fact, in the motorcade in Tampa, Kennedy told the Secret Service agents to move to the back of the car as the route got thinner and they got closer to people because Kennedy wanted the people to be able to see him and get close to him, as this again was a strategy towards re-election. He would have the same approach for the Texas motorcade as well, as he did not want to feel that any law enforcement was crowding them and that Jackie and he could wave to as many people as possible. But these trips were not without their dangers. Interestingly, it is said that prior to Dallas, there was also an assassination attempt during his trip to Florida. There was a bomb threat in Miami that the local police knew about that allegedly the FBI did not. A letter dated November 16th was sent to the chief of police of Miami, threatening there would be a bomb at the airport to kill Kennedy and the mayor. It seems there weren't enough resources to have extra police for protection, but there are conflicting reports about that. 
What does seem to be agreed upon is that the FBI were unaware of the threat and that it was kept under the radar because JFK was still coming to speak and do a motorcade. Texas also had its own dangers. The night before Kennedy arrived in Dallas, Chief Curry of the Dallas Police Department got on TV and pleaded with the people of Dallas to be courteous and show respect to JFK. This was likely because the heat was rising with some groups that were pro-Cuba and very anti-JFK in the area. Also, a month prior to the assassination, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Adelaide Stevenson, was driven off the stage in Dallas and heckled. Despite these events, the FBI allegedly had no intelligence to give the Secret Service to keep Kennedy from campaigning in Florida or Texas. So they went forward with the motorcade plan. Who was it? JFK, Jackie, LBJ, and his wife Ladybird would fly to Texas for the motorcade in various cities. Where? To decide the route in Dallas, on November 18th, Special Agent Wynn Lawson of the Secret Service Advance Team, Forrest Sorrells of the Dallas Office of the Secret Service, and Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry drove the route from Love Field to the trademark. As they did this, Agent Sorrells even allegedly said, we'd be sitting ducks. Why? They then published the route for the motorcade in the newspapers for everyone to see most likely doing this because they wanted to attract very large crowds. And it was successful because people were everywhere along the routes. They did this for many motorcades, including the others on this trip to Texas. One of the most interesting things to me about the motorcade is how public it was, but also how unique it was to other motorcades. For example, this was the first trip that Jackie had ever been on with JFK domestically since he was elected president. She was not a part of the trip to Florida the week before or any other in the U.S., just a part of this trip to Texas. They began in San Antonio and did a motorcade there with the Secret Service follow-up car and then the Lincoln SS 100X presidential limousine they had flown down from D.C. Then they flew the presidential limousine ahead to Dallas while they were in Houston and leased cars for the motorcade there. Then on to Fort Worth, where there was a motorcade to the airport, then to Dallas. They took the 15-minute flight on Air Force One from Fort Worth to Dallas instead of driving because they wanted to get the photos of the arrival of the president and first lady coming off the airplane into the city, and also so they could gather even more people to rally for them. In Dallas, they returned to the Lincoln car for the motorcade. Now, aside from Jackie's presence, another area of uniqueness to this motorcade involved the safety protocols that would usually be in place, but were not. In his book, Killing Kennedy, Bill O'Reilly says there would ideally be these four parameters in place for a perfect motorcade route. One, it would be devoid of high windows because of potential snipers. Two, it would have alternative routes in case something went wrong. Three, it would have few, if any, tight turns. And four, it would have wide streets to keep crowds further from the car. The Dallas motorcade broke all of these. From what I've studied, most of the reason behind this was again in response to Kennedy's instruction of remaining accessible to the people. But also, interestingly, not all of these would have even been possible at this time. The Secret Service had 11 more experienced agents leave in the two months prior to the assassination. So they took 34 experienced agents that they had to Dallas. There were usually about five agents with the president at any given time. Their job was to cover the president and evacuate him if needed. 
There was an advanced team that went ahead, but they wouldn't have secured the way they do today. They didn't have the resources to, nor the protocols in place, it seems. Here is Special Agent Hill. Well, you mentioned about this, this particular building. Why was this building secured? Yeah. Were the windows open or closed? We came down Main Street. All the windows were open on every building down Main Street. People were hanging out the windows. People were on balconies. People were on roof, rooftops. Which building should we have secured on Main Street or at the corner of Houston and Elm? You're only going to have a building secure. How about the rest of them? So you just couldn't do it. Isn't it true, though, that, that the public perception is you guys check all windows, but in reality, you don't? I mean, there's no at, way. At that time, we were unable to. Today, it's different. There, there are ways that they do major checks on, on various areas when they have a motorcade. Obviously, once Kennedy was shot, this motorcade disbanded and the presidential limousine was driven to Parkland Hospital with the SS follow-up cars and Vice President Johnson not too far behind. Two things I just want to mention here. First, John F. Kennedy had health issues all of his life. He was very sick as a kid, and throughout adulthood, it only worsened. He had Addison's disease, which had nearly worn his adrenal glands down to nothing. Due to military injuries, he also wore a back brace every day, and then later he had a double fusion spinal surgery where they put a metal plate in his back. And sadly, his body could have been the very thing that secured his death. Because when the shots were fired, it is said that Kennedy wasn't able to bend down enough to duck into the backseat of the car, even if he had wanted to. Secondly, I mentioned LBJ was behind Kennedy and Connolly, and I had never noticed this until researching for this podcast. But if you watch the Zapruder film, enhanced and slowed down, maybe 20 or 30 times like I have, <laughs> it seemed that LBJ ducks down just before the Stemmons freeway sign just before the shots are fired at Kennedy. Aside from the loose protocol for the motorcades and the Secret Service being limited to what they were able to secure at that time, a lot of bizarre things happened around Dealey Plaza on this day of the shooting and afterwards. For one, there are a lot of stories from people who had taken photos and videos, other than Abraham Zapruder, that were asked to give their film over and probably never saw it again. Next, there's LBJ's refusal to leave Dallas without Kennedy's body. LBJ had actually flown in Air Force Two to Texas, but he would return on Air Force One after being sworn into the presidency. As the famous black and white photo shows, he's standing there next to Jackie when he's sworn in. But interestingly, it is not a federal crime to kill the president. Did you know that? It is a federal crime to author a conspiracy to assassinate the president. But because JFK was shot and killed in Dallas, it was actually under the jurisdiction of the Dallas police to handle the autopsy. But LBJ and the Secret Service aggressively pushed for JFK's body to leave with them on Air Force One to Washington. So the Dallas authorities relented and let them take Kennedy's body on Air Force One as long as a Dallas doctor went with them to stay with the body and to be able to testify in Washington. Then there were other instances of tampering with evidence. Cliff Carter, who was the aide to LBJ, had collected John Connolly's clothes from the head nurse of the emergency rooms at Parkland Hospital. These are the clothes he was shot in. Carter gave them to a Texas congressman who put them in his office closet in Washington. Then the clothes were given to Nellie, Connolly's wife, who washed them and most likely pressed them as well. Hmm. Also the car. 
The SS-100X presidential limousine was covered with the top at Parkland Hospital and then cleaned by Secret Service to get rid of the blood. The car was then driven back to Love Field against the wishes of some Dallas police investigators, loaded onto a cargo plane, and flown back to Washington to be parked in the White House garage. Not only that, after it was there, it was driven by the head of security for the Dearborn division of the Ford Motor Company, to a place in Cincinnati, Ohio, that had helped in the car's original design and engineering to replace chrome molding strip that was damaged in the shooting. The driver noticed in the transfer of the vehicle that the molding strip had been hit with a, quote, primary strike and not a fragment, end quote. But this driver wasn't the only one to notice damage to the car, which I've always wondered about. Whether or not there were any signs of the car being hit or the windshield being affected, anything, During the Warren Commission, Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman, who was sitting in the passenger seat of the president's car in front of Governor Connolly, told about damage to the car in an attempt to convince the Warren Commission to look into the idea that there had been more than three shots fired at the motorcade. He testified that the windshield had been hit by the bullet or the bullet's shell and that he had noticed the indentation in the chrome molding as well. It is noted in the Warren Commission that the windshield had a crack internally, but was not penetrated completely. Then, in December 1963, the White House approved plans to have the limousine rebuilt and reupholstered for President Johnson, destroying the evidence completely for future inquiries. Here are Hill and Blaine again sharing an interesting note on their perspective on the Warren Commission. And uh, (laughs) believing that the second shot hit the governor, the third shot was a fatal wound to the president. Yeah. I believe there were two mistakes that the Warren Commission made, that they did not call Sam Kinney, who was the driver of the follow-up car, or Emery Roberts, the shift leader, because uh, Sam Kinney had to keep his eye constantly on the presidential limousine, and Sam saw all three shots find their mark and uh, Emory saw all three shots find their mark. Unfortunately, they weren't asked to testify. We are going to address the Warren Commission in a future episode, because there is a lot to discover there. But for now, I want to make note of one other important detail they seem to overlook. Let me introduce James Tague. You will want to know this guy. James Tagg was a car salesman who, believe it or not, was also wounded in Dealey Plaza the day of the assassination. Tagg was standing near the Triple Underpass Railroad Bridge. He was approached by a Dallas sheriff's detective who had noticed that Tagg had specks of blood on his right cheek. On the upper curved part of Main Street's south curb was a very fresh scar impact that looked like it had been struck by a bullet and had actually taken a small chip out of the curb. It seems that one bullet ricocheted off of the curb and the debris hit Tag. The detective had told Tag it looked like a bullet had been fired either from the school book depository or the Daltex building. But here's the thing. The curb surrounding the scar chip was not cut out until August 1964, after Tag had repeatedly reminded authorities that he had also been wounded during the shots. He was questioned by the Warren Commission just before in July, And there he testified that he thinks some shots were coming from the grassy knoll area to his left. And he actually would have been a great person to speak to that. I've stood there and walked around that area. And if shots came from there, it would have been highly likely that he would have noticed it. 
the FBI forensic tests that were in the final report countered Take's claim, noting that the curb was not hit by the same kind of bullet they had from the assassination. So, who was right? And then somebody threw a firecracker. I was wondering what kind of an idiot would be throwing a firecracker with the president driving by. And I'm standing there in disbelief of somebody throwing a firecracker. Crack, crack, two rifle shots. About a second apart, and something stings me in the face. Could have been a mixture of a little bit of lead and concrete. I was sprayed, sprayed. Debris hit me in the face. Broke the skin maybe in three or four places. A drop of blood in each place. And all of a sudden, the Warren Commission had a big problem. So you made them change? They had to rewrite the report. It changed history. If, I, if that policeman had not ran up to me that day, and I'd have gone home and forgot it, history would have been different. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp. Today, I, I try, I'm still trying to grasp it. President Kennedy was killed right here in front of me. You, the jury, given the details I've shared today, what questions would you have if you could ask them to the personnel involved with the motorcade? Is the lack of follow-up and evidence acquired a foundation to build a case that conspiracy exists? And is there enough testimony of tampering with evidence to point to the same? Is it plausible? Thanks for joining me for this episode of Plausible. I'd love for you to subscribe so you can continue to be a part of the jury. Hang in there. In our next episode, we are going to talk about our main suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald. These are my theories and ideas formed from the wealth of knowledge of many others. If you are interested in those details, check out the sources on our Instagram, plausible underscore podcast. Specific to this episode, if you want to learn more, I'd recommend the book Killing Kennedy by Bill O'Reilly, any book by Clint Hill, and the movie JFK by Oliver Stone. It runs deep, people, and we're only getting started. Plausible is written and narrated by Christina Hoagland, Edited and produced by James Lobwin. Music by Rodent Law.